enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Welcome to the Energy Fellows. I'm your host, Mark Stansberry. Today, we're going to take a journey back from Western Oklahoma on to uh, all parts of the world, in fact, not only through Oklahoma, but through the nation and a leader in energy and education and civic a leader as well. Welcome, Sam Hammond. Sam? Hello, Mark. How are you? Well, doing great. I uh, watched you through the years, through the journeys you've had. And I, I say journeys because it's been not only energy, but other areas as well that you've been an expert in. I don't want to read a bio. I'd rather hear from you. And I know the audience would because it all starts back in in the western part of the state. And if you would, tell us about yourself and the journeys. And and bottom line, before the end of this podcast, we're really wanting to encourage others, you know, some maybe some things that you've done through your challenges and opportunities, through, you know, things that you've managed and the challenges you've had to work through and to give some advice along the way as to how to look forward on uh, success and how do you get there. And so please, Sam, tell us your history. Well, okay. That's quite a task, uh, Mark, but I'll uh, I'll meander around a little bit. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Clinton, Oklahoma. So uh, Western Oklahoma, Custer County, Oklahoma, and went from there to uh, undergraduate school at Oklahoma Baptist University. And then I have a master's and a law degree from the University of Oklahoma. But I actually got my master's degree after I'd been practicing law for some time as my law practice sort of morphed into an international practice, primarily throughout my career energy-based. But it sort of led me then to go back and get a master's in uh, international relations, which was a very interesting thing to do at, at midlife. But anyway, back to Clinton and then to OBU. One of my professors at OBU was David Boren, of course, a well-known former governor, former U.S. senator. He'd been a, a Rhodes Scholar around the top of his class at Yale. And anyway, he came to OBU to teach and then uh, decided at a young age of 32 to run for governor. And uh, he was he was kind of a back row legislator that had made his name uh, trying to be a reformer in Oklahoma government and thus was uh, banished to the back row. <laughs> back then, the Democrats outnumbered in the legislature and at all offices in Oklahoma, they outnumbered the Republicans about the way the Republicans outnumbered the Democrats today. So you could fit inside the Democratic tent, if you will, as a more conservative, less conservative. Perhaps they were not as, well, certainly they were not as orthodox as uh, apparently is required to be a Democrat today, but it was a much bigger tent, you might say. So anyway, I then interned for him and then actually interned for Carl Albert, who was uh, the Speaker of the House of U.S. House of Representatives 
Uh, he represented southeastern Oklahoma, a remarkable guy, also a Rhodes Scholar, and went and we think may have been the very first intern ever in Washington, D.C. So I'm kind of dating myself. <laughs> there may have been other interns, but there's reason to believe I may have been the first. So I did research for Carl Albert and researched on what past speakers had said and done. And then he used that, that information in speeches and references, et cetera. Anyway, great experience for an undergraduate to have. And then went on to law school. While I was in law school, David Bourne decided he was going to run for governor. And he drove over to see me and said, would you work in my campaign? Well, I said, yes. And off we were. I was actually the first member of the Born for Governor staff. Later, we had several other young people join the campaign. The Daily Oklahoman referred to us as the Kitty Corps because of not only the youth of the candidate, but the youth of uh, the staff. Anyway, long story short, won the gubernatorial race and actually ran in in the general election against Jim Inhofe. (laughs) Yes, remember that. Yeah. So, you know, this is ancient history for some of your listeners, but Bourne became governor. I uh, started off handling corrections matters for him on his staff because we had had a, a major prison riot down in McAllister, which was the principal place of incarceration at the time. And after a year of that, we hired a new corrections director, and then he asked me to move into energy. And thus, the trajectory of my life was changed. Back then, we had just experienced the Arab oil embargo because of our support for Israel as a nation. There was great concern about both saving energy and becoming energy independent. We didn't really have a Department of Energy or a Secretary of Energy, either at the federal level or the state level. And so I was asked to to handle that area as well as federal-state relations. So it became a very hot topic. There were gas lines, you may recall. I do. And so the Saudi Arabians cut off their oil to America as punishment. And we were faced with, for the first time in our history, a real crisis in the energy area. People began to realize that energy was really the base of the economy. I mean, you know, you can't make fertilizer without natural gas. You can't heat homes. You can't uh, produce electricity, certainly with peaking power when you needed it. So, and, and many, many other uses. And so it became apparent to the average American that this was a really big deal and needed to be addressed. So I moved into that area. Jimmy Carter was running for president. He was, I guess, the most conservative of the Democrats. And so Governor Dolph Briscoe of Texas and and David Bourne decided to support him if he would promise to deregulate natural gas. Mm-hmm. Back then, you had this dual market and the disparity in prices, which the producers got, was great. So if you happen to be selling your gas 
to a pipeline that crossed a state line, then the federal government controlled the price. And if you were selling to a pipeline that was just intrastate, in other words, the gas was produced in the state and it was used in the state and it never crossed state lines, then those states, at least Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, the major producing states, allowed the free market to work. So no surprise to anybody that knows anything about economics, we had plenty of gas inside the state and in any state that allowed market to decide the prices. But not surprisingly to anybody who understands economics, there was a massive shortage in the interstate market, uh, particularly up in the Northeast. But the federal government kept the prices artificially low to try to benefit the consumers. Well, you may have kept the price low, but then you didn't have gas because the federal government wouldn't let the replacement cost for the gas be paid to the producers. So this was a big battle. And Jimmy Carter did agree to that. We had him put it in writing in a letter to both governors, and he agreed to deregulate natural gas. Well, he was elected, carried both Oklahoma and Texas, I believe, if my memory serves me right. And in any event, he was elected and then began to work on his national energy plan. Well, that was really the first time we had a, a coordinated and very important national energy strategy. So I was assigned to help his team develop that. So there was a guy from Texas, a guy from Louisiana, and me. We arrived in Washington, D.C. after his election and began a series of very interesting meetings, which really impacted what is done today even. And the idea was to deregulate natural gas. Well, President Carter asked James Schlesinger to be his energy, we'd call it a czar today. And he was housed in the White House. We didn't have a Department of Energy back then. And he had been a former CIA, head of the CIA, a former defense secretary in previous administrations. So a very experienced guy, always had a pipe in his mouth, was very uh, thoughtful. He was quite an entertaining person. And I'd encourage people to go back and, you know, look at YouTubes of him. Very bright guy. But there were about six of us that were these young bucks, if you will, who were working on this national energy plan. Well, those of us from producing states became concerned as more and more influence could be seen from the consuming states. Anyway, bottom line is we agreed on a compromise, and that was it would be deregulated, but not immediately. It would be deregulated over time. And that was signed into law. A Department of Energy was created. And we began then to see, of course, over time, as the market prices began to dictate the prices, we began to see an increased supply in interstate markets. And so I was, you know, had the fortunate 
opportunity, good fortune to be involved in all that. Came back home. And of course, I went back and forth to D.C. and Oklahoma quite often, but decided then to stay with the next governor, who was George Nye. He he asked me to stay on his staff, which I think had had never happened before. It may have happened once before where a governor asked a previous governor staff member to stay on, on their personal staff. And But I agreed to do that. And uh, so I stayed a year with Governor Nye. What a great guy. He uh, really exemplified traits of leadership where he would really support his staff and work with us and really enjoyed that year. And then he asked me to be Oklahoma's first secretary of energy. He formed a cabinet form of government. And that was really uh, the first time that had been done. So we had a Department of Energy at the time. It has since been rolled into the Corporation Commission, but at the time it was a standalone agency and I became director. I still handle all the energy policy for the state, but we also administered conservation programs, solar energy programs, as well as attempted to enhance production in the states who had producing capability. So did that, and uh, that was very enjoyable. I I gave the governor a one-year commitment, and I fulfilled that and then moved into the private sector as head of the natural gas contracts division at RAM Group, and that was Resource Analysis and Management Group, an energy consulting firm headed by Dr. Bill Talley and stayed there, sold my interest after a few years, and started a natural gas marketing company and named it after my hometown. It was Clinton Gas (laughs) Transmission. And we actually did the very first open access free market gas transaction done in in the United States. And we we turned on a, a 30 million cubic feet a day fertilizer plant over in Arkansas on behalf of Agrico, which at the time was owned by Williams Companies in Tulsa. It was interesting, I thought, because uh, Williams Companies owned two large natural gas pipeline companies, but they couldn't quite figure out how to navigate through this uh, new world of open access markets. And so the president of Agrico actually flew his plane from Tulsa to Oklahoma City, um, met me at the Wiley Post Airport, we had a long discussion and he said, I've got 11 days left on my agreement with the pipeline company to turn on 30 million cubic feet a day. And the subsidiaries, the the pipeline subsidiaries of Williams can't quite get it done. Can you? I said, yes, I believe I can. I kind of had an idea. And anyway, it worked out. So we turned that plant back on. I then figured out wrongly that the pipelines would figure out how to do this, and that was not going to be a long-term business model. And so we ended up, I ended up selling the company. I think I could have made a lot more money, Mark, if I'd have stayed with it. But anyway, sold the company and then went into practicing energy law. And we did, goodness, all, all manner of energy law and other types of legal practice too, all business related, but my work was probably 90% energy related. 
my clients really sort of opened up for me the whole international practice. It was not something I'd particularly planned on. It's just that they took me there. So we ended up doing projects, and by that I mean natural gas-fired electric generation projects in various countries. We acquired natural gas equipment for our clients who manufactured equipment. Anyway, that took me to uh, various countries, very interesting work. And I certainly say that, uh, well, I, I remember in my, at a pretty young age, in my 30s, going over 3 million miles on just, just American airlines. My goodness. And I flew many, many different airlines, but I don't know if that's something you put on your gravestone or not. But anyway, <laughs> I did. And that was a lifetime platinum on American and other airlines as well. But it was taxing, but very interesting. Got to know a lot of people all over the world and still stay in contact with some of them. That then led me to be retained along with uh, Mark Nuttall and some other guys to go on behalf of a foundation to Russia right after communism fell. Right. And went there numerous times working with them on a variety of issues helping them to foster democracy. It was kind of a short-lived experiment, it has turned out, but that was our our goal also in Ukraine. My partner, Mark Nuttall, actually ended up running the independence election for Ukraine Mm -hmm. when they voted to go independent. Anyway, worked there, worked in China after Deng Xiaoping opened it up. Just a lot of interesting experiences around the, the world. I can segue into what I'm doing now, but I, maybe I ought to pause. I think I've been talking a lot. Uh, I love this. I love this. I mean, those that are listening to this, I mean, you're talking about not only history, but you were part of that history. And I think that's so important for those that are listening, uh, students that are listening to this or upcoming leaders and, and uh, those that need to reflect and be reminded of the uh, situation with OPEC back in the day and, and uh, to talk about the circumstances when it came to natural gas and because of your efforts and others, we saw a lot of activity in Western Oklahoma. I'm originally from Western Oklahoma as well. And so we saw from Elk City. So we saw a lot of activity in Elk City and Clinton area due to a lot of your efforts and, and your friends and associates as well. Think about the Ram Group and Dr. Talley. My goodness. Wow, what a history there. I mean, it goes on and on, the history and, and being the first Secretary of Energy as well for Oklahoma. And we're, we're just getting started. I mean, I've <laughs> talked about Sam and uh, his background, Sam Hammonds. Uh, it's uh, so interesting to hear about all the things you've done. And like I say, we'll, we're, that's part one, I guess, because we've got some other things to talk about. And let's go into, if you will, I guess the next journey was, and I, I, didn't, I think you didn't mention about your investment banking side as far as who you were involved with there in New York. And then also, I would like to talk about, after that, uh, some other activities you've had in regard to civic and giving back to society as well. Okay. Well, yeah. I learned through my experience, because I got to do all I did at at young age, at a very young age. For example, at age 30, I was uh, chairman of the Southern States Energy Board. Well, that's 17 Southern states. And... It occurred to me that after me, 
the board needed to always be headed by one of the Southern governors instead of just a secretary of energy or something. And that way you would raise the visibility. I mean, you know, the governor of Tennessee may or may not take a call from Sam Hammonds in Oklahoma City, but he will take one from the governor of Oklahoma. And so I, I made that change. And since then, a governor has been chairman of the Southern States Energy Board, and it's become, I'm proud to say, a very viable and energetic organization that doesn't just do studies that go on shelves, but actually impacts our country beyond just the 17 Southern states. So that was important, and I feel good about my service there. And again, I learned one person dedicated and knowledgeable who works hard can make a difference in the whole country, good or bad. I'm glad you're saying that because that, you know, those that are listening to that, you think my impact doesn't mean much, but it does. And you see this in, in your reflection now of your history, but those that are planning their future, I always say, look at the open door, look and see what's behind the door. There may be something there, may not be, but definitely look in. And you did, and you because you did, you were able to continue to add to the bio, which is really history and, and making a difference in others' lives. Please continue. Yeah, it's just, you know, I just believe strongly in, you know, go for life, go for these opportunities. And it's just, it makes life interesting and exciting and always prayed for an interesting life and not just to make money or whatever, but interesting. And my goodness, I've been very blessed <laughs> in that regard. And I, so I, you asked about investment banking. So I practiced law. The law practice was very good to me. But I felt like when I got into my 40s that, you know, I, I was kind of hungry to do something different. I did not, regrettably, have much of a background in finance. And I wish I had studied the subject more in, in school, but didn't. And so I had to sort of learn on the fly because finance is really what makes the world go around in any industry or business. And so I had to kind of uh, learn it. I remember, you know, buying, I guess now they call them books for dummies, you know, how to read a balance sheet, things like this. <laughs> so I ended up leaving the law practice and joining, and it was a law firm I had founded, but just felt like I wanted and needed to move on. And so I joined a group called Costco Capital Management out of New York, headed by Cameron Smith. Great guy. Interestingly enough, another old name, it's William F. Buckley's nephew. And anyway, we worked on bringing private equity financing to independent oil and gas producers in the oil patch. Uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, other states, Colorado. So really enjoyed my work there, not just, you know, doing transactions, but actually building companies that to be a part of that was really exciting. And I, I enjoyed that a great deal. That company sold. And I then uh, was contacted by a guy who I'd met in the course of working with Costco who was an expert in underbalanced drilling, in fact, had written a seminal textbook on the subject and co-authored it. 
And he contacted me and said that he believed he had developed a suite of tools which would allow us to drill into shales without fracking and produce three to five times more hydrocarbons from those shales. Well, we had gotten him financed previously, but it was all on conventional resources, conventional reservoirs. If it had been anybody else, I would have kind of dismissed it, honestly. But I, mm-hmm. I listened to him. I became convinced he was onto something. So the headline of this technology is that we believe we can drill and produce for half the cost compared to a fracked well and get three to five times more out of the same hole. So we hired engineering firms in Houston, uh, reservoir engineering firms here, a firm, and we've had mechanical engineers look at it and they tell us that it'll work to the best that they can figure. So we are getting ready to go now, are actively raising a drilling fund to go drill our first wells. We have a 12,200 acres under contract with an option on a lot more. And we're going to go use this technology in a shale. And this kind of brings me to this topic. Always people discount technology as a way to solve problems. I mean, I've seen this through my entire career. Right. Horizontal drilling really saved the industry. Fracking. I mean, no one thought about these high-pressure, high-volume fracks, you know, 25, 30 years ago. No question. But then fracking came along. So it is time for a lot of reasons, not only economics, but environmental, to take the next step. And I believe we're about to do that. I really do. So people who want to say no can say no. I mean, I remember reading in the early part of the last century how the military said, well, there's no foreseeable use for the airplane in combat. (laughs) Well, that's that kind of thinking. And you have to have people involved in any industry, but particularly the energy industry, who are looking for the next big thing, who are looking for disruptive technology, who are willing to step out there and take a chance, just like Larry Nichols did when they acquired Mitchell Energy, just like Mitchell Energy did when he developed the slick water frack. Well, I think now is the next step, and I I think we're on the cusp of that. Anyway. Is there a way to reach out to you, I guess your, your company, or to learn more about what you're discussing? Sure. Our company is Newbridge Resource Development. We do not have a website because we are going to stay under the radar, if you will. After we prove the technology and build a data room, then we'll begin to negotiate with oil and gas companies for licenses and that sort of thing. But we're not going to do that at this point because we want to do that only after we have driven the value of the company and the technology up. But yeah, I mean, if someone wants to know more about it, they can email me at shammons at nbrd.llc. Wonderful. Well, I really think that that's something that, you know, when we talk about innovation and technology, 
I go back to what you just did. You listened. I think the, when we take the word lead, I say, I use L as listen, E is to execute, A, analyze, and, and then D, develop or deliver. And that's what you, I think, we're saying is you're encouraging those in the upcoming leaders and those leaders at the boardroom, from the whiteboard to the boardroom, to really listen and to never say no until you really know it's a no. It's it and because there's some so many opportunities that that could be missed, and those that could be executed. I've had a talk that I've been giving over the last few years: the digital transformation from the whiteboard to the boardroom, and that means we need to connect both. And that's what you're doing. And so there are those that are listening, both that are currently involved in the industry, but those that are up and coming. Those may be in uh, universities or what at uh, tech schools or whatever. What dashboards, metrics, measurements, as far as checklists, what, and I, I'd say advice, it, how, how do you look at, you know, giving tips, looking for opportunities, these measurements, how do you calculate all this together? And I'm saying that we could take two or three hours, by the way, but <laughs> in just a few minutes we have left, kind of directing students maybe where there's good references or tools, reading that you keep up with that, that could help them in their experiences in the energy industry? Well, I think it's important to understand the history of anything, and that includes the oil and gas industry. A lot of times uh, there is not an emphasis in a particular business or industry or enterprise on the history. And so I think good leaders have an ability to appreciate the history without being stuck in it. I mean, you know, the old saying, well, we don't do it that way, is the death of more ideas than anything. And so a balance of understanding and appreciating history, but being open to investigating and looking at new ideas is really critical. And it is a balance. So I think that is is just important. So understanding the history of the oil and gas industry, for example, is there, there are a lot of good publications out there that helps in a sense. For example, what we are doing with this new technology is we are going back to the future, if I might borrow a movie title. And that is back to the era of underbalanced drilling before the rotary cone drill bit was invented by Howard Hughes Sr., and the mud systems that came along. So you kind of rethink the way you approach a problem. Well, what's the problem? Is it Does it cost too much? Do you want to get more out? Do you want to protect the environment more? What What is the problem? And then be willing to be open-minded as to how you approach that problem. I mean, it's one thing to make your career on shaving, you know, 1% off of an AFE of a well. It's another thing to be open-minded and look for disruptive technologies. So those who don't, you know, pursue the latter are going to be left behind. They're going to be, I remember Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for, you know, nothing. And they turned it down because that's not the way we do things. And we've got this business model and it's going to work. Well, Blockbuster is gone and bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Netflix has taken over. And there are hundreds of examples like that. 
the pocket calculator. I think it's Monroe Business Machines. They turned it down and they thought it was a silly idea. And I know one of the guys that helped start Texas Instruments and the first pocket calculator. You've just got to be able to understand history, but also be open to innovation. It's happening so rapidly. So I don't know if that helps or not, but yeah, that's that's something that's very important. Sam, this has been so inspirational and encouraging and thought-provoking. I really appreciate you being on today. And I got a feeling we need to have you back because there's more that we could talk about. I know that we didn't really get into the uh, giving back to society like you've done through civic engagement, where you've been chairman of a board of trustees for a university, where you've uh, been president of uh, the largest Rotary Club in America, and on and on and on the things that you have done, not only in the energy industry and legal practice, but have given back in so many different ways. And we all appreciate that. And we hope you'll come back because I think we have some more dialogue, conversation in the future. Well, I'll be happy to, Mark, especially if it encourages uh, others. Well, you've been listening to the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury. And please remember and keep in mind and don't forget, the future of energy depends on us. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.